0: This is a part one of a part two series about Adira James. And before we get into it, we'd like to add a trigger warning for the following episode as the discussion is very emotional and features topics of sexual abuse and violence. Here is her story.
1: Okay, so if I may, I want to start out by asking you, Adira, why you think it's important to share your story? Because I... I guess I think it must be painful and everything, but uh, what is it that's important for you uh, that you go through that to share it? And, and what is a good outcome for you uh, for sharing your story? Um, I
2: I really want to share to save other kids. I feel like this is such a a segment of human trafficking that nobody's talking about. So people are talking more about human trafficking in general, and they're talking about more pimp-based trafficking, which is generally more teenagers or young adults that are getting trapped in pimp-based trafficking, which is wonderful that they're talking about it. But people aren't really talking about familial trafficking, which in general, the kids are much younger. And they're trapped in a situation where they're surrounded by their abusers a hundred percent of the time, there isn't really the same possibility of an escape because usually people would tell their friends or families if they do feel like they're at that point where they feel strong enough that they can escape their situation. There's really you know your friends and your or family one of them is um is the perpetrator. So plus, I'm really a big advocate of of the understanding that it's not a child's problem, it's an adult problem. So we can't expect children to have the verbiage, to have the words, to have the ability to, to even express what's going on, let alone a solution for it. So I'm really hoping to get that awareness out that this is happening um, that is a lot more widespread than that people think it is, because people don't want to think about, you know, family members abusing their kids. They right. just don't want to think about their parents abusing their kids, which it's such an ugly, horrible thing to think about. But it's happening, yeah. so I really want people to know that and to look out for signs. Um, so that that's really what I'm, what's propelling me forward to mm-hmm. share my story is to let people know that it's happening. And to feel strong enough and to feel, I want people to feel empowered to do something about it, Mm -hmm. to give them that agency.
1: Right. That's great. And I think you have a very good point that um, everyone else who this is not happening to needs to um, not be on the lookout, that sounds wrong, but be aware of what's going on. And if they have someone who is um, being mistreated, or abused that mm-hmm. you should ask about. You should, you're the adult. You need to reach out and make sure that that family mm-hmm. member or friend is okay.
0: Right.
1: Right. And to be able to feel
2: comfortable. Also, I have a whole list um, of organizations at the back of my book um, what they couldn't take also, that has, along with calling the police, but for for people to be able to, like, if they're not sure if something's wrong or they have a feeling, you know, first of all, follow your instincts. You can always call the authorities. The authorities are going to be the ones to make the decision. So, but to feel that, like, you know, it's... If you feel like something's wrong, most likely something's wrong. Right. So to, I want people to feel that strength inside of themselves that if they see something that's not right, to make that little extra step. And, I, and I'm also hoping that survive, other survivors are able to hear my story also and feel that they're not alone. Right. So that's another reason I w- really want to get my story out so that they, you know, people, it's... It's so difficult, such a difficult situation when it's your family and and to know that you're not alone. This isn't, you know, an uh, isolated incident and that there is help out there and there are other people that are surviving it and trying to be a warrior every day just like them.
1: Right. Well, that's very much appreciated Mm -hmm. that you're doing that work, you know, Because it is, but it is like, it must be uh, connected to a lot of shame and all of that because you're the child and your family is supposed to show you what is right and wrong and protect you.
0: So how are you
1: supposed to know? Like, obviously, you know that it's wrong because it feels wrong and Mm. it's, you know, terrible. But when you're a child, you'll think that it's you right Right. the the problem always yeah
2: definitely because you don't have the when you're a child you have no no power in the situation really I mean you can't make what are you supposed to do Mm -hmm. when it's your parents and you're five years old what what can you possibly do and also it's so normalized at that point like for me I was trafficked from age two to twelve and there was still abuse that happened after that but So I didn't know any different. I had no idea um, that I knew, just like you said, I knew it wasn't right. I knew I was being hurt. I knew I was unhappy. I knew all of those things. But I didn't know that this wasn't what it was supposed to be like to be a child. Like, I didn't know that not everybody's household is is like this at, you know, three, four years old. I had no idea. So it's just, it's so normalized. That's another reason why um, it's, you can't expect a child to be able to, uh, you know, go to an authority or tell somebody is because it's so normalized. They don't know Mm -hmm. that they're even in a situation that they can tell anybody,
0: right?
2: You know, when you're three or four years old, five years old, you you really there's no way for you to know your parents are like your gods almost. Mm-hmm. They're, they're supposed to teach you just like you said, what what morality you know is, what ethics are, what being safe means, what being loved means. They're supposed to teach you all of those things, and when they're the ones taking all that away from you, then you're you've you know you're basically in a situation where there really are so few options,
0: right um Adira, right. can you tell us, like from the uh, i mean i know a little bit about your story because mm-hmm. i i read the blurb of your book i didn't read the whole book but i just mm-hmm. read the blurb so i know a little bit but um can you tell us um a little more about your story what happened and how yeah. it started
2: yeah first i also i wanted to give kind of the definition of what familial trafficking is, because I think sometimes it's nice to start with that just because some people don't even um, have the, they don't have the knowledge yet about what sex trafficking is, what child sex trafficking is. And so I like to kind of start, if that's okay with you, with kind of a definition from the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, or NICMIC. So basically, child sex trafficking is a form of child abuse when a child's under 18, where they're advertised, solicited or exploited through commercial sex act. And then familial trafficking is when a child is trafficked by a family member or someone who, um, who the child perceives as a family member. So you know how sometimes you'd be like, oh, that's uncle Joe, but it's really mom's best friend. You know, so it could be somebody perceived as a as the um, child's family member, and it's basically where that sex act is taken in exchange for money, drugs, a plus a place to stay, like anything of value. So it could be um, a situation. It doesn't have to be money or drugs. It could be a place to stay. It could be a ride. It could be anything, but you're taking that commercial act, sex act in exchange for it. And again, the familial, I just think it's so important for people to know also that it could be somebody that is perceived as a family member. It doesn't have to be a blood relative in order for it to be familial um, sex trafficking. But um, in terms of my story, like I said, it was it's was mostly from ages two to twelve. Um, I still was abused after that, but it was mostly from family members, from my father and um, a couple other family members and a couple of, I, I say clients because I was told that they were my clients. So I'll say clients, but obviously they were rapists, you mm-hmm. know, and, and pedophiles. But mm-hmm. um, when I say clients, it's the people that literally I I had interaction with mm-hmm. that I'll, I'll name on that because that's kind of how I was told that they were. But um so it ha- um most of my trafficking happened in the city of Detroit. I was born in the city of Detroit in Michigan. And there was also so basically the um the abuse happened in my house. It happened at the perpetrators' houses and also in we have an upper peninsula in Michigan, which is really far up north from Detroit and there's a lot of campgrounds and things like that up there so there were some campgrounds up there as well where it happened and for me it it was kind of a combination in terms of how it ended it um, was a combination of me kind of aging out cuz i was developing at that point and i got pregnant and i mo- most likely it was my dad's child just based on who was abusing me, the amount of abuse, but I'll have no idea and there's no way to tell exactly who the father was. I'm
0: sorry, you were 12?
2: And 12, yeah. So um, they aborted the baby and, but I think it scared them a lot because then how are you going to explain um, what's going on. Cause for my situation, I never was taken to the hospital for anything. My pediatrician was actually part of the ring. So it was a, it was an organized pedophile ring for me. So my, my parents, both of my parents trafficked me, both of them were involved. It wasn't just one parent, but it was within a group of like a very organized pedophile ring of very influential people in the, in the area. So there was politicians, judges, police officers, Um, And and people that worked with my dad, my dad was um, really, in terms of what was given in exchange for me, it was elevation in his job and money. So that's what his, what my parents benefited from, from selling me. So it was, um, every situation's a little different. For mine, it was, there was a ring involved. It wasn't just the parents selling me, um, on their, on their own. It was like a very, it was very organized, but, um, so, so basically most of the, the clients, which again, I call them clients, even though I know they're perpetrators, but most of them were middle-aged white males. And again, they were all these different, People that were, again, more affluent in the in the area was my specific situation. And that's another thing I really want to emphasize that it doesn't have to be a situation where somebody's is an impoverished situation. It can be right. anybody. It can be any situation, any socioeconomic situation. So you don't always when you're looking and again, your instincts are popping off, but you're like, oh, but they have nice clothes on. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean anything. Just because somebody has nice clothes or they have a nice car or it seems like the parents have good jobs. It it doesn't matter if this is happening. It's happening in any situation. So um, it started with the with the age two, as I said, so I have no memory of anything different. So for me, the only outlet that I had really was school. I was allowed to go to school, which I feel very lucky that I was allowed to go to school. But school was kind of like my acting job and home was home because I, I was threatened with so many things not to tell. So I was threatened with, they, they gave me drugs and alcohol from very little, from like three or four. I mean, my first memories have me like having alcohol um, and drugs. So I was given an intravenous drugs, pills, um, they chloroform me sometimes to get me to, to places that I wouldn't remember where I was going. I was, um, again, given a lot of alcohol and I don't know what else I have no right. idea what else they gave me, but I was under the influence a lot. Um, and taken these different places or at home, both places, I was given all these drugs and then I was threatened. Like I had Clients that threatened me that my parents would be, like, my dad would get fired if I told, and my family would be out in the street. So I had that threat. My, um, one of the clients and my mother actually buried me up to my head, up to my face one time because I, um, I um, upset one of the clients. And so that was my punishment.
0: How horrifying. I was horrifying. Yeah,
2: it was horrifying. So. I had no doubt that if I told I would be dead, that was my, that was my whole, my whole way of keeping my, keeping the family secrets was if I tell that I'm going to die.
1: And And I'm sure you were not wrong. Right. You know, if that was your feeling, that was how it was.
2: Yeah. I was even showed snuff films, which I don't know if you know what they are, but they're films where you see kids getting killed.
1: Oh, my
2: God. So um, I was shown snuff films. So I had no doubt of what was going to happen. So, again, you don't know what these kids are getting threatened with in terms of why, you know, because a lot of times people ask, like, why why didn't they say, you know, why didn't they tell? Why didn't they go to a teacher? You don't know who's safe. Mm -hmm. If you don't think if your parents aren't safe, then you don't think a teacher's safe, you know, necessarily. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you might, but um, a lot of times you don't. So um, and then I was hurt worse. So my dad, if I like if I complained or if I said something was hurting or I cried, then he would just hurt me worse. So like everything had a punishment. Everything had a punishment in terms of anything I could have even possibly done what they would conceive as being wrong right. there was a punishment for it so another thing that was a part of my abuse was which i think is very common is um there was a lot of pictures being taken by my father he took pictures and videos which is child sexual abuse material what they used to call child pornography mm-hmm. is now c sam c s-a-m and um And that was taken of me and then those were given to the client. So sometimes it was taken of me by myself and sometimes it was taken of me with the client and then the client would take it with them or they would pay extra for it. So that was really, really difficult, too, because I felt like a piece of me was being taken for them to take Mm -hmm. home, like Mm -hmm. an extra piece of me, like a piece of me was already being taken from the abuse and then they got to take a piece of me home.
0: Yeah.
2: So that was a whole nother like level of, of abuse. And, um, and also in terms of just a a different thing too, I'm mixed. So I'm, I'm um, black Indian and German. And I think being black and Indian, um, because most of the clients were white males were middle-aged white males. I was like exotic. So they requested me a lot for that reason. And I also had a gap in my teeth and I I know I was requested by at least two people for my gap in my teeth. So there were requests too. It's just, it's such a sick, Mm -hmm. it's just a sick culture. So I know I was requested for those things. At least there's probably more, but I know at least for that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that my teacher should have seen like my main thing is I think teachers, doctors, police officers, like social workers, they're the front line and mm-hmm. figuring all this out and being able to help children. But um for me, like I missed so much school. I had injuries on me, permanent bruises. I had um like There was a lot of lies like they I would miss school and I knew I was with a client up north, for instance, and I would miss school, but they would tell them I was sick. I was malnutritioned. So there's all these things going on that I feel like the teachers, I think they're more trained now um, than they were on this type of a thing. So I think maybe it would have gotten picked up now, I would hope. But I was sent to school sick. I was there was just so many signs. Like I, 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 I was able to like, I, I, my dad would dislocate my hips and my shoulders a lot. So my hips and my shoulders would pop out a lot. And I was able to get them back in on my own, like just weird things that, that it, like something's wrong here. Like it could be, they could have thought maybe it's just physical abuse or maybe it's, um, emotional. They, they, there's so many signs of abuse that I I feel like they should have picked up on, um, but one thing I think like my pediatrician was in the ring,
0: yeah.
2: And he um, he took care of all my immunizations, all the things the doctors did. I, he had a room in the back of his house. I would walk in. There was a room that was set up as a as a examining room. Mm-hmm. So it had everything there—a scale, everything. But he would abuse me in there. But he would also repair any tears or um, give me any medications or um, give me anything. Like if I had some sort of infection, he would take care of all of that, too. So there was no exposure to the outside other than school. So I didn't have like a regular doctor. I actually didn't know what a regular doctor was until I was 13 and I was taken to a regular doctor. And I freaked out because there was kids in the waiting room and there was a receptionist mm-hmm. and it just was like, I Too had much. no, cause I walk in there's, yeah, there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. And it was just me and the doctor. And then he abused me while I was in there. So I was scared to death, mm-hmm. you know? So the um, so that was also a part of it that mm-hmm. I think why it didn't get caught um, was because I only had that exposure, you yeah. know?
0: Um, can I ask a question? Do you think perhaps that yeah. the teachers no, didn't know what to look for, number one, but also number two, they're just overworked and there's so much like you got to do this and you do this and do this so that they're not even thinking physical or they're just not even thinking, period? Do you think that was it, part it of it? It could be.
2: It could be. I think I think a lot mm-hmm. of it is um, is training. I okay. think a lot of it is training because yeah. I feel like... Um.
0: Yeah, I think, I I don't know, I think teachers go into it because they care for kids. So I think that that caring is there. It's just maybe you're right. That is the training. And, um, you know, didn't know what to look for. And I think it was,
2: yeah, they didn't know what to look for. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think, again, you look at like, who my parents were, and they were more affluent in the area, you know, because my dad got all these crazy raises, he became a vice president of his, of his work of a big company. And I think, As as a society, generally, people think that if that if somebody has a more like um, stable environment as it looks from the outside, that there's no more stability in that situation. And that's not necessarily true. So even though it may look on the outside like it's a stable situation. So the teachers might have been like, "Ah, I don't know, this isn't quite right. But, you know, we know that. Mom and dad are there. You mm-hmm. know, mom is at home. She's not working. Dad mm-hmm. is working at a night at a good job and um she's got her uniform is clean all the time. She's got, you know, this and she's got that. So yeah. maybe it's just mm-hmm. some weird illness or something. Right. Maybe there's right. something right. like that going on. Can I ask but, if you had siblings? Think-
0: I'm sorry. Did you have siblings or anybody any child friends that were also in that environment that you talk to or can lean on
2: um I did have one sibling and unfortunately my dad taught him to abuse me so he became another abuser I mean we were close when we were very very little but he he, he they taught him I believe in order for it to be impassable for him to tell anybody right because then he would That's have to involved. say he was doing it
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and so, and I think that's common mm-hmm. as well. More common than people think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so unfortunately he had a different kind of abuse. He wasn't in the ring. He didn't he wasn't trafficked, but of course he was taught to abuse me, which is abuse, and it tore our whole relationship apart. So
1: Yeah. yeah. I bet. Uh, do you think that maybe in the last decade or so, there has also been kind of a change in the way people look at uh, sexual abuse and trafficking because it used to be like a stranger danger thing, some Mm -hmm. creepy looking guy in a van Mm
2: -hmm. and just
1: stay clear of those and people have not been um, aware or paying attention to their neighbor or Mm -hmm. stuff like that. I just think that you hear a lot of stories where... It's right in front of everybody
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and um, people just weren't looking. And it wasn't in their mind's eye that mm-hmm. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: feel like it's it is still important to to tell kids about the stranger danger. But we have to expand that conversation um, I've actually written a couple children's books and one of them was about a, a neighbor and one was about um, one was about more of a, a stranger. But they, the stranger said that they knew the parents and kind of that whole scenario. And then one of them was a neighbor who um, who basically trapped I, all the characters are kittens. But yeah. um, but. But yeah, I feel like that, that whole conversation needs to expand. I think it is expanding, just like you said. I think people are noticing it more now, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. And they are, I think people are getting more exposure. I think people are understanding now that it's not just an international problem, that it's happening outside of the country, mm-hmm. but that it is a domestic issue also, which I feel is a new revelation for people. Um so I do think people are waking up more to the to the, all the different aspects of trafficking. I just think right. that
1: we need to bring more awareness to the little kids. Absolutely. And and also awareness, to. I mean, I would think, why did nobody ask themselves why this pediatrician had a consulting room in his home? Right. His his family, his neighbors, his right. friends. That that's the huge red flag. I mean right. this is a lot of people and they have like a huge like um you know uh they meet a lot of people a lot of people know them. Right. And there must have been a million red flags. Things where right. you go, huh and well, sure should care.
0: A lot of a lot of uh children um, Patience, uh, or was it just you that did, did he have um, a larger um, I want to say client base because that's exactly mm-hmm. what this was <laughs> mm-hmm. instead of uh, patients
2: yeah there were other kids in the ring for sure um, so I know that there were other kids that had to have gone in that back room I he also what I found out later is he was some big time pediatrician at a big time children's hospital in the area. So he had his own big practice in the hospital where I'm hoping I'm hoping against hope against hope that he was at least ethical there, you know. Mm-hmm when um he was in more of it wasn't in a situation where he was in control of every element of it, you know he's in a hospital and he's got receptionists and mm-hmm. nurses and parents and everybody going in with the child that I'm hoping none of those children were abused but um i I know that he had other other kids come to that back room because there were other kids in the there are other kids in the ring, so even if he wasn't sexually abusing them, maybe. I don't know. I'm. I don't know whether he abused boys and girls. I know he abused girls because he abused me, but I. I know for a fact that he gave medications to the other kids. So at the very least, he was involved with drugging the other kids. Wow. Yeah. So he was. He was horrible. I. I. It's, it's been like all different a different healing thing with him, a different healing uh, path, I guess, with him, because there's a different, you know, there's every, all the different perpetrators obviously were horrible pedophiles that hurt me so, you know, horribly, but each one, there's like a little bit of a different, a little bit of a different, um, healing path, I guess. With my parents, I'm angry about certain things or I'm upset about certain things. There's different situations. With the pediatrician, it's a little different. I'm writing a second book right now and I've written letters in them as as a way to to talk to them and, and kind of get through my emotions with it. And I have one with the nameless abusers and One with the faceless abusers, because sometimes I don't remember every single detail Mm -hmm. of every abuser. You know, sometimes I'll remember their pants Mm -hmm. or I'll remember a hand or I'll remember a face or I'll remember a sound or a smell or, Mm -hmm. you know, it all comes back a little bit differently. But it's been um, it's been different with with each situation and, and what I've I just like with the pediatrician, it's just. You know, you take an oath. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: it's a whole level. You take an oath. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Above all, cause no harm.
1: Exactly. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So. I think that you're incredibly strong Mm -hmm. and I'm just, I'm really uh, inspired and in all of you, really. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, to be able to talk about it and then just survive. I mean, yeah, and and I was thinking what what has helped you like survive? When I
2: was a child, it was really dissociation that helped me being able to just check out. And I came to kind of welcome the drugs and alcohol because it was easier to check out. But, um, yeah, just being able to separate from myself and just let my body be my body and kind of float. I, I can see myself from the outside and some of my memories, I can see myself from the outside looking down. Hmm. And that was really how I survived. But I really, the the whole, you know, I, I went through a lot, you know, a lot of problems, especially right away, starting from when I was nine and ten, I started with the anorexia and bulimia. I was already malnutrition, but I started with the anorexia and bulimia, cutting, um, su- a lot of suicide attempts. So I've had a lot of challenges, substance abuse, but I feel like I've really learned that healing is not like a straight trajectory. It's so up and down. Mm-hmm. So I've had some times where I feel like I'm I'm kind of able to tread water and I, I'm kind of, okay, I got this. I'm going to therapy. Mm-hmm. I'm taking my medication. I'm writing. I'm doing my artwork, which is artwork and writing has also always been a really amazing outlet for me. Even when I was really little, my dad would bring home, um, like scrap paper from work mm-hmm. and I had a set of crayons and I would just write stories. Even when I couldn't really write, <laughs> I do my own little stories, and draw. And even from then, that's always been um, like an outlet for me. And then other times I'm just, you know, struggling horribly and feeling like maybe I've done enough in this life and it's time to, you know, time to wait till next time, you know, and it's just. <clears throat> excuse yeah. me. It's just. um It's just definitely an up and a down. Mm -hmm. And, but I, but I really feel that that it's so important to let other survivors know that too, that just because, you know, things are difficult sometimes, just because there's an up and a down, just because you feel like, you know, hopeless some days, it doesn't mean you're not a warrior.
0: Thank you for listening to part one. Please tune in next week for the final episode. And if you're interested in reading Adira's memoir titled What They Couldn't Take, please check the show notes.